0: Hello everybody and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Tim Boone, Promise of God by Mike Evans with permission of Timeworthy Books and we are in chapter 40. In spite of everything I did to keep my mind active, boredom overtook me. I counted and recounted the cracks in the wall, the imperfections in the squares of the toilet tissue they gave us each morning and racked my brain for a way to make use of the sanitary bucket more private. At the same time, hunger pangs in the pit of my stomach sent a dull ache through my body, and without the daily liver extract treatments, I became noticeably tired. Afternoon naps, something I had not needed after I turned from treatments under Dr. Trump in Amsterdam, now became a regular part of my day, all of which narrowed my worldview to the rhyme of the day. Food call in the morning, sanitary bucket call, dish pickup, afternoon nap, food in the evening, lights out at night on the morning of the fourth day when a slot in the door opened and the tray appeared i lunched for it as helen had on my first day i scooped up one of the bowls of porridge and retreated to my corner slurping it without regard of how it sounded greedily eyeing the fourth bowl and thinking helen is right the woman on the cot doesn't need it she spends her days sleeping and when she's awake she only stares at us and never says a word Then guilt descended on me like a heavy weight. How could I think such thoughts? How could I entertain the notion of depriving some of us such a basic need of food? I was mentally, at least, consigning to her death for a bowl of something that would never satisfy me. I pushed aside those thoughts, took the fourth bowl from the tray, and coaxed the woman on the cot to eat. When we were finished with breakfast, I redoubled my efforts to pray and recite scripture from memory and resolved to make it a habit after each food call. If food was crowding out all my priorities, I would push back with Scripture, and I resolved to never let a mealtime pass without rousing the woman on the cot and helping her to eat. In between the highlights of our day that attended our bodily needs, we still faced long periods with nothing to do. To fill that time, I recited Scripture out loud from memory. At first, I repeated random verses as they came to mind, But after a while, I started over, beginning in Genesis, and I worked systematically through each of the books in order, challenging myself to remember as much as possible from each book. When I could not recall any more, I told myself the stories from each section. Adam and Eve, the Tower of Babel, Noah and the Flood. I tried to do it quietly, but as I was telling myself about Noah releasing doves from the ark, Helen heard me, and of course had something to say. I suppose you think that works, too, she chortled. You mean the scriptures? You chant it like it's some kind of magic, just like your prayers. There's no magical answers, I replied, only mystery. Whatever, Helen shrugged, and then in a moment of inspiration, I suggested we play a game. I'll say a verse, and you see if you can repeat the word for word exactly as I say it. It was silly, but we needed something to do. What do we get if we're right, Helen asked. That was a prison life, summed up in one simple question. What do I get? Everything out of our circumstances, lack of food, lack of privacy, lack of productive activity, invited each of us into a world where we were the sole focus of attention. Every woman for herself, an invitation to complete alienation. I had nothing to offer, so I said, we'll keep score. One point if you're correct, but you'll lose two points if you're wrong. Nell seemed interested, so I began. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Nell and Helen looked at each other as if waiting to see who would go first, when suddenly the woman on the cot spoke up, I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you... All the families of the earth shall bless themselves. My mouth fell open at the sound of her voice, and I laughed. That's exactly right. No, it's not, Helen protested. That's not what you said at all. But that's what comes next, I replied with a grin. Then I scooted over to the cot, brushed back the hair from her face. You're awake. She smiled weakly. Yes, I think so. Good, then you can tell us your name. Christina. Christina Burma. She turned her head to look over at Helen and pointed, She's my sister. My mouth fell open once more and I turned to Helen. She's your sister? Helen shrugged. What can I say? She showed no regard at all for Christina. And while it had been troubling before, now I knew they were sisters. Her attitude was all but incomprehensible. Helen had taken food meant for her. She sat in the corner, ignored her. She left her to languish near that point of death and apparently only for her own comfort didn't she know what a gift they were to each other was there no love at all between them and if not was there not even a sense of family obligation why weren't you helping her i demanded she's mad at me christina said flatly about what she was arrested because of me christina continued what were you doing hiding jews No, Helen chimed in. She was helping them escape from the camp of Westerbrook. I was helping them get away, Christina argued. They got themselves out of the camp. I just picked them up and gave them a ride. That's a long way from Amsterdam, I observed. How did you make the trip? She drove herself up there, Helen offered. I looked back at Christina. You have a car? Our father's a businessman. He owns several stores. At least he did before all of this. I turned back to Helen with a puzzled look. I thought you said you were hiding teenagers. Before Helen could answer, Christina spoke up. She was. But that's not why she got arrested. She was arrested because they found me in the car with three Jews from the camp. And then they searched the house and found the two boys hiding in the basement. Never would have found them if they hadn't found me first. I looked over at Helen. You can't ignore your sister just because you're angry. She ignored me Helen protested. I told her not to go up there anymore. She's been there five times already. I told her she'd get caught, but she didn't listen to me and now we're here. Helen folded her arms across her chest defiantly and slumped against the wall. Christina smiled. That's the way she is when she gets mad. Folds her arms like that and pouts. Tells people she doesn't know me. She's been like that since we were little girls. There was a twinkle in her eye, but I know her secret. Her voice was soft and kind. She loves me anyway. Slowly, Helen turned towards Christina until her eyes met and then she started to cry. Seconds later, she came from the corner to the cot, wrapped her arms around Christina's shoulders, and lifted her from the bed in an embrace. I was envious of them for all of it, their fights, the anger, their frustration, the love that could not be quenched by even the deepest heartache. Right then, I longed to see Corey and Noli more than ever. As spring approached, the cell grew warmer during the day. After morning food call, we took off our coats. At first, we folded them neatly and laid them on top of our mats, which we all now rolled and stood against the wall. But that proved messy and gave the room an unkept look. So I hung mine on the pegs that lined the walls to the right of the door. The others did the same. Christina continued to improve. Each day, the reconciliation between her and Helen that had begun with tears grew deeper and deeper until all animosity between them was replaced by the joy and pleasure of each other's company. When Christina was strong enough, she moved to a mat on the floor, and we took turns night to night sleeping on the cot. It wasn't more comfortable than the floor, but it was a treat, and we all enjoyed our turn. We'd come a long way in how we viewed one another, our cell, and the restrictions of our confinement. Our relationship to one another grew deeper with each passing day, and our minds remained alert and active. But the one thing we could not change was the dull, aching pain of hunger that permeated our bodies. That night on April the 14th was my night to sleep on the cot. Corey's birthday was the next day, and as I lay there in the dark, I said a special prayer for her. It had been months since I'd seen her, and although I thought of her often, I did not dwell on her. Those times that I did linger over her in my mind proved painful, and all I could see was the look on her face as they led me into the cell. Such sadness, such longing. It was more than I wanted to bear, so I relegated myself to remembering her in bits and pieces of thought examined, but for a moment, and then pushed quickly aside. That night, however, I allowed my mind to remember her and to dwell on each one. I thought of the times as a child when I read to her, and the day we first planted tulips in the window boxes at the Bayeux. We had both known that they would not bloom, but I insisted on planting them anyway. The memory of her giggle as we slipped the bulbs beneath the soil brought tears to my eyes, and in my mind I saw the flowers blooming in those boxes, bright, beautiful, and lovely. Tulips, I told myself, were a sign from God, even though they only existed in my mind. So I clung to the thought of them as an encouragement. "'A sign from God that this was not the end "'and that one day I would see Corey again. "'After the food call the next morning, "'the cell door opened and we were ordered out. "'We were apprehensive about what might happen next, "'but no one spoke a word. "'The guards led us down the corridor "'and around the corner to a large open room, "'which I realized was a shower. "'It had been months since I'd washed myself. "'A guard watched us while we undressed "'and laid our clothes on the benches that lined the room.' Then she retreated as we stepped beneath the shower heads. I expected cold water, but it was tepid and as pleasurable as a hot soaking bath. Small trays attached to the wall held soap, and we each took a bar and then lathered our skin and hair. Afterwards, we stood with the water running over our heads and watched it trickle between our toes. No one wanted to leave. Finally, the guard returned and ordered us out. Towels were stacked on the benches where we'd left our clothes and we dried off. We only had the same dirty clothes to put on, but after a shower, they didn't seem so bad. On our way back to the cell, I saw tools being led up the hall with a guard on either side. Our eyes met, and she mouthed to me that she was going home. I was delighted that she was released and thought of it as another present from God for Corey's birthday. But that also made me think that there was more to our imprisonment than I'd yet realized. A present for Cory could have just as easily been her own release. And the fact that it was not told me that God had something more for us to do right where we were. Five days later, it was April the 20th, Hitler's birthday. We'd heard the guards talking about it among themselves when they came to the cell during our daily routine. Something about a party with a cake and ice cream. At first, we thought they meant for us and our spirits soared. I'd gone two months without the liver extract or vitamin supplement. And even with an afternoon nap, fatigue was a problem. Although it was a celebration for Hitler, the prospect of cake and ice cream was a treasure trove of calories too great to avoid. Then we realized the party was only for the guards, and our spirits plummeted. On the day of the party, the hall fell strangely silent as the guards left us to enjoy the celebration. About the time, I noticed the silence and began to consider what that might mean. Someone down the hall shouted in a loud voice, Is anyone from Benbrook? "'For a moment there was only deafening silence "'as we all waited for a guard to shout and curse for quiet. "'But when none came, someone called out, "'I'm from Hempstead, which is a town not far from Bimberg.' "'Then a chorus of voices rose from the cells "'as women up and down the corridor shouted out their names, "'asking about loved ones and acquaintances. "'I opened the slot in the door and shouted out for Corey, "'But every time I did, "'someone in the cell beside me drowned out my voice.' Frustration grew but I shouted all the more and then someone up the hall called Corey is looking for Betsy Tears came to my eyes and a lump formed in my throat Corey was alive and asking for me but I could not speak Helen was kneeling beside me and gave me a nudge Isn't that you? Isn't that your sister asking for you? I can only nod my head in response so Helen shouted through the slot Betsy is in cell 272 What about Nolly? I whispered through the sobs. Betsy wants to know about Nolly, Helen shouted, and a few moments later came the reply. Nolly was in cell 318, but she was released last week. Relief overwhelmed me. I turned my back to the door, sank slowly to the floor, and wept for joy. Corey and I were still in prison, but Tuse and Nolly were safely home. Chapter 41 is next week. I love you. I'm praying for you. and. Bye-bye for now.